I'd like for you to turn to the fourth chapter of the book of Acts. The fourth chapter of the book of Acts. Verse 29. Now you recognize this as the end of the story of the arrest and the threat that the authorities, the Sadducees, extended to Peter and James and John at the gate, the temple gate. They told him, said, now you're not going to, you, you, you don't speak anymore or preach at all in the name of Jesus. And they said, well, we, we, we can't help that. We've got to do it. And this is their prayer as, as the result of that threat. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that thy bondservants may speak thy word with all confidence while thou dost extend thy hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of thy holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all then filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were koinonia. That, that word in the Greek is koina. I'll mention that in a minute. All things were common property to them. And with great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And, re, and, and abundant grace was upon them all. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as they had meat. A guy called me up one day and he said he wanted to recommend me to another church. Not, not, not lately, but uh, and he, he wanted to recommend me to another church. He said, uh, he said, I want to recommend you to a good church. And I got thinking about that. I, I thought the one I was pastoring, you know, was a good church. And, and I, so I uh, began to really evaluate, reevaluate what, what makes a good church, what constitutes a good church. I, I think I know what he was talking about. He was talking about, you know, a bigger church and more attendance on Sunday and, and a big budget and, and, a, and nice facilities and a great program because... That's really our, our criteria for a good church, isn't it? That's the way we measure a good church. It's not the way God measures a good church. As a matter of fact, God's criteria is not, you know, more the, the presence of impressive people or better facilities. His criterion is the presence of the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, the presence of the Holy Spirit is the criterion by which we measure any work of God. So that when the disciples were scattered out and they went out from Jerusalem out into the Asian world and they found these little groups of the way that had sprung up out in that Asian world, the first thing they did was ask them this, did you receive the Holy Spirit after you believed? Because they understood, they knew, that unless the Holy Spirit was present in power in the church, 
It wasn't going to really make any difference or matter much at all anyway. So that the criterion for the uh, good church is the presence of the Holy Spirit in that church in power. And by that criterion, this church was a good church. Now the scripture says that they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now these disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. And this indicates that it was something that just happened then. Well, it was. For the infilling of the Holy Spirit was a continuous thing. And this is a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit. Now what do we mean when we say that the church is filled with the Holy Spirit? Well, that means that the church bore, this church bore the qualities and the characteristics of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was manifesting Himself in that church. And, and, and that means that when you say the church was filled with the Holy Spirit, it means that that church was exhibiting the nature and the characteristics of the Holy Spirit Himself. And when that happens, now listen to this, when that happens, there are four implications. There are four things that result, tangible things. There are four seeable things that you can put your, you, you can, you can put your finger on and say, now this is the evidence of the infilling of the Holy Spirit in that church. As a matter of fact, you might entitle this sermon, The Marks of a Good Church because there are four of them. I want to do two of them and, and just touch on the third and get the fourth tonight. Wherever the church is being filled with the Holy Spirit, you're going to have, first of all, a unified, a unified fellowship. Now he says in verse 32 that they were of one heart and, one heart and soul. Now frequently you see in the epistles, now watch this carefully, frequently you see in the epistles this statement, they are of one accord, or they'll say they are of one heart, or they'll say they are of one soul. But very rarely do you ever find a statement like this. You'll very rarely ever find this construction. They are of one heart and soul. It's a double emphasis there. And what he's doing is he's emphasizing the, 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 the uh, unity of that agreement, the totality of their agreement. He is emphasizing this entire harmony of affection and thought. He is saying that this church filled with the Holy Spirit thinks the same way and feels the same way. They are absolutely, completely one. Now where the Holy Spirit is present in the Godhead, there is no division, there is no strife. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the Godhead. And we're told that they are three in one and there is no division and there is no separation where the Holy Spirit is. And where the Holy Spirit is present in the church, in filling it, and He is manifesting His nature there, there is no strife and bickering and division. It's impossible to have it there. Now you're aware that that the 17th chapter of John is, is the prayer of Jesus. It's called the Lord's Prayer. Now we call our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. We call that the Lord's Prayer. That's really the model prayer. John 17 is the, the Lord's Prayer. And in this prayer, shortly before His ascension, this is the way He prayed. Now watch what, listen to how He prayed for the church, for the believers. He said that they may all be one, even 
as thou art in me and I in thee, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that thou didst send me. Now what he's doing is this. Jesus is praying for nothing less than the church to have the same unity that he had with the Father. And what Jesus is saying is this, that the greatest evidence or proof to the world that God sent Jesus, His Son, is when that world sees the church in unity, in unity, when the world sees the church in oneness, then the world will believe that God sent Jesus as His Son. So that the first thing the Holy Spirit does when He begins to infill a church, He begins to mend us together and He makes bickering and strife impossible. Now the totality of that harmony is not just a negative thing. It's not just the absence of bickering and strife, but it is the positive presence of a unity of agreement. A unity of agreement. For you see, the greatest guarantee against lack of harmony or disharmony in the church is that everybody in the church has the same objective. I was talking to a coach not long ago, and he, he, has, he said, Gerald, I have the, I have, not this coach now, but he said, I have five of the finest players I've ever had. He said, I've got better material than I've ever had. But his team was falling apart. I mean, they were going down in a hurry. They were on a losing streak. He said, Gerald, he said, I've got the best material I've ever had. But he said, I've got five players when I put them on the floor that the objective of each of those players is to be high point man that night. And he said, when I put those five players out there, I know that I've got five players, each one of them, their primary objective and goal is to score the most points. He said, I can't, he said, there's not enough passes. There's not enough shots when everybody has that one, you know, they have, each person has his own objective to be high point. Can you imagine what it would be like if you put those five, same five players out on the court and their primary objective was to win the game. That was their primary objective. So that every pass and every shot mesh into the primary objective to win the game. Well, you couldn't... They were, he said they would have been... They're unbeatable if they have that objective. Now, you put a church together that is meshed together in the infilling of the Holy Spirit and the one have, with one objective, you can't stop the power of that church. Now let me, let me tell you something. Watch this. The Holy Spirit has one objective in this world. His one objective is to magnify and to glorify and to testify of Jesus. That's His one objective. Now listen. You and I are spinning our wheels when we try to get the Holy Spirit to be interested in anything but that. Now, I went and checked to see how many we had in Sunday school this morning. Well, let me tell you something. The Holy Spirit couldn't care less how many we had in Sunday school this morning. Unless by some way, somehow, the, the large number in Sunday school magnifies Jesus. That's the only way He cares about it. I tell you what, the Holy Spirit couldn't care less about these new buildings we've built. Unless somehow these new buildings give glory to Jesus. We're spinning our wheels if we try to get the Holy Spirit to, do any, to be interested in anything but that. That's His one objective. Now you say, preacher, have you ever been in a church like that? I've seen them. 
I've seen churches so infilled with the Holy Spirit, so manifesting the Spirit of Christ, and everybody moving to one objective, and that objective to glorify Christ, and you could sense His presence when you walked into the room. So where there is a Spirit-filled church, there is a unity of fellowship. Secondly, there is a recognized stewardship and so he says in verse 32 that they had everything in common. Now there are two ways in which this stewardship is manifested. Now hang in here, watch this. There are two ways in which this stewardship is manifested. It is manifested in the stewardship of possessions. Now it says in verse 32, and I love the statement, it says that not a single one, and there's emphasis there, it says not a single person in that church, not a single one looked upon what he possessed as his possession. Not a single person. Not even Ananias and Sapphira, we're going to talk about tonight. Not even them. Not a single person in that church, that spirit-filled church, looked upon his possessions as his own. But every one of them, he said, every single person in that church looked upon his possessions as a trust to be given up to God whenever a need arose. What kind of fellowship, what kind of church would you have in that case? We're so caught up with our selfishness. And we say, well, I've got my responsibility. And we do, there's credence to that. I've got my, do I've got my rights. But there's where the power lies. Now watch me. There's where the power lies. Because you can't read through the New Testament without discovering that there is a direct correlation between one's understanding of his possessions in a theological perspective and, and this liberality of God. You can't see it. You can't find it anywhere. I challenge you to look through the New Testament and not see a correlation between one's understanding of his possessions and the liberality of God to meet his need. It never failed. I've seen it happen again and again. When you have a church that's stingy and selfish and holds on to what it has, you're going to find a void of spiritual power in that church. But where you find a church that begins to recognize that it, has, that it is not the owner of its possessions, and these possessions are offered up to God in trust for Him to use when there's a need. Whenever you find that, you see God begin to move in to that congregation. And where God moves in, you see revival. And when revival comes, you don't have to have stewardship campaigns. You get more money and you spend. I need to say that again. Because it fell on deaf ears. When the Holy Spirit moves in and begins to infill a church and that church begins to recognize that it is, owns nothing, that we own nothing, but all of it is given in sacred trust to be given back when God needs it. When that happens, revival comes. And when revival comes, you don't have to have stewardship campaigns. You get more money you can spend. Let me tell you something. Is it logical? It is not logical for us to be infilled, to be filled with the Holy Spirit who is the, who is the manifestation of God and be stingy and selfish at the same time. It's not possible. For the chief characteristic of God is His liberality. He gave to all men liberally. God so loved the world that He gave 
The chief characteristic of God is His liberality. Now let me ask you, can you be a characteristic of God and not manifest liberality? You can't do that. Some of you may have in your library the Warren Angel's little book, not, not Warren, Roy Angel's little book, uh, Baskets of Silver. I remember that's one of the first books my mother gave me to read. Roy Angel was the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Miami, Florida. And he said, one day a guy came in right after Christmas. He said, Dr. Angel, I need to tell you about my Christmas. This is the best Christmas I've ever had. He said, well, tell me about it. He said, well, my brother gave me a brand new Packard. Now, some of us here today can remember Packards. I can remember Studebakers all that, but I'm a lot older than some of you. He said, he gave me a brand new Packard. He said, well, man, you ought to have had a good Christmas. He said, that's not why I had a good Christmas. He said, one... One day I, got, I left my office and, and I walked out in the street and he said, there's a little urchin boy, a dirty street urchin, out there looking at my car. He's rubbing on it and he said, Mister, how much does a car like this cost? And he said, I said to him, it didn't cost me nothing. My brother gave it to me. He said, little boy said, you mean your, your brother gave you a car like this? didn't cost you nothing? He said, that's right. He said, little boy said, I wish, and he said, I knew what the little boy was going to answer. He was going to answer, I wish I had a brother like that. I mean, who wouldn't? Well, when that little boy answered, it rocked that man all the way down to his toes. This is the way he answered. I wish I could be a brother like that. And he said, I said, what, what did you say? He said, I, I said, I wish I could be a brother like that. He said, well, you want to ride in my new car? He said, I'm dirty, so I'll get the seats dirty. He said, you may be dirty on the outside, but you're clean on the inside. You'll do my car good. You get in there, we're going for a ride. He said, they started out in the street, and the little boy said, would you go by where I live and let me show this to my, my, my brother? And, he said, and, and the guy said, I, I, I had an idea what he wanted. He wanted his brother to see him getting out of that big Packard car. But what he did was totally different than that. When they drove up in front of this old beat-up tenant built, tenement building, this old run-down shack, he said little boy jumped out, ran up, went, in, went inside, ran upstairs, and came back carrying his little brother in his hands. His legs were dangling from his waist. He was crippled. He said he helped that little boy up to that car and said, See there? That man's brother bought him that car. It didn't cost him nothing. One of these days I'm going to buy you a car just like that. And, and the man said, the little boy said, You know, is this your brother? Yeah, he said, Yeah. I said, I, I go down to the, in the, looks in the windows downtown. I see all those pretty things and I come home and I try to describe them to my brother, but, but I, I, I'm not able really to, to describe what it really likes. One of these days, I'm going to buy my brother a car. I'm going to take him so he can see for himself. Now listen to me carefully. When you come to a place where your chief desire in life is to be so liberal that you can give your brother something to help him see life as it, all, as it ought to be, as it really is, you know that then you're filled with the Holy Spirit. When you come to the place where your desire in life is to be so general, generous and so liberal that you can provide something that your brother can see life as it ought to be seen, then you know then you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I want you to get the com this marvelous language that's in verse 33. I want you to see this. Because the Apostle Paul said they had all things, or, or the, the Luke in, 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 this, in, the, in the book of Acts said, and, and they had all things common. The word is koina. We get our word koinonia from that. It's, it's the word we get, it's the word for fellowship. Now watch, he's saying that 
they had this marvelous fellowship in the church. And it was obvious to, to this writer that, that, that fellowship wasn't drinking Kool-Aid and eating cookies in the fellowship hall after church on Sunday night. Fellowship was the sharing of one's possessions. And so he says in Philippians chapter 4, he thanks God for the fellowship of the gospel. And if you read the fourth chapter of the book of Philippians, you'll discover that what he's talking about there when he talks about the fellowship of the gospel is not sharing the gospel as such, it's the sharing of possessions. And then he says in verse 19, that verse that we've all memorized, and my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. And you need to understand that every verse has a context, and it's connected to the context. And because that verse that you and I quote out of context begins with and, it directly connects it with its context. Now who's he talking to there when he says, my God shall supply all their, your needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus? Who's the your? We say, that's us. You're wrong. Let me show you who he's talking to. Listen to verse, if you want to turn to it, you can do that. Listen to verse 14 of chapter 4. Watch, listen carefully. Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone for even in Thessalonica you send a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. He said, I'm wanting you to have something. We said, but I've received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all your need according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? He's saying you can only count on God's liberality if you're liberal with your possessions. Now, I hate, I, hate to, I hate to bust your bubble there, but I just did. Now, you may want to quote that out of context and put that little scripture up on the mirror and put it on your refrigerator and say, God's promised me that He'll supply all my needs according to His riches and glory by Christ Jesus. But I want you to know that that has a direct correlation to how liberal you are. For we have said over and over again that there are certain laws in the world and when you violate one of those laws, it affects the next law. And there is the law of provision. And there is also the law of possession. And when a person gets straight this matter of the law of possession, then God is freed to make His liberality in the law of provision. I love it. When I begin to recognize that I don't have anything but that God owns everything. And there might be one day He says to me, I need that. Somebody over here needs it. And I say, it's yours anyway. Here it is. When I get to that point, then I can trust God to be liberal in my life and not until. Now I said that this stewardship affected, the, it's the stewardship of possessions. It's also the stewardship of preaching. And so He says in verse 31 that they begin to speak the word of God with boldness. And he says in verse 33 that they were giving witness. Now watch this carefully. When the Spirit of God begins to infill a church, that church begins to witness with boldness. Now I want you to notice the language of this. That, that Greek word, word, translated word giving, is a word that means to pay back a debt. Now most of us, when we, think we, when we witness, we think we're doing God a favor. 
And so we come down here on Monday night and we go out witnessing and we say, well, God ought to appreciate this. I could be home watching Vanna turn those little boxes. I don't, I don't have to be here. I bet God better appreciate this. Listen, when you're out witnessing on Monday night, you're not doing God a favor. You're doing what you're obligated to do. The Apostle Paul didn't feel this way. And so he says in Romans 1, he said, I am a debtor, a debtor to the Jew and to the Gentile, to the Greek and the barbarian, to the bondman and the free man. And what you're doing is you're just, you're just doing what you're obligated to do. For when the Holy Spirit comes in power and He begins to fill us, He begins to make honest men out of us, honest women out of us. We pay our debts. As a matter of fact, we begin to pay this spiritual debt. That is the debt of witnessing. I've tried to make witnesses out of people for 30 years in the ministry. I can't make witnesses out of people. I got all those cards the other day and I looked through them of people that agreed to be trained to be witnesses and I thought to myself, I'd like to know how many people I've tried to train to be a witness. I've tried to make witnesses out of. I can't do it. But let me tell you somebody who can. That is the Holy Spirit when He takes control of your life. You begin to speak the Word of God with boldness and it, and it means that you begin to pay back your debt. You're not an honest man if you're not a witness. I tell you that. It's criminal not to do it. How would you thought of, what would you have thought of Jonas Salk if he'd have found the formula, the cure for, for polio? And he said, ah, there it is. That's the formula. It works. And he just took that formula and, and folded it and put it into his pocket and said, let them find their own formula. I don't know anybody anything. I've been spending a lifetime researching this. It'll make me a millionaire. Let, 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 you know, let them find their own way to, to, to cure polio. What kind of a guy would he be? You'd think he's the worst criminal that walked on the earth. It's criminal not to do it. It's what we're obligated to do. But I seem like I'm kind of worked up here. I, I really am. I, I, I've got a, I guess that's that medicine I'm taking. I don't know. That's a, all right, there is, a, there is a unity of fellowship. There is this recognition of stewardship. There is, now watch this, Carol. I'm just going to name it. I'm going to deal with it tonight. There is the purification of membership. And that's where we get into Ananias and Safari. There is the purification of membership. I want to touch on this last one that I'm through. There is the realization of lordship. Now all the way through this epistle, the epistles, you'll find the great theme of the lordship of Christ. But in the fourth chapter of Acts that we've just read, verse 24, they recognized something unique about His lordship. They called Him Lord, but it was not the normal, the usual word for Lord. It was a word that meant absolute dictator. It was a word that meant despot in the purest sense. Despot. You know what a despot is? He's a total dictator. He's an absolute dictator. And what he's saying is that this church filled with the Holy Spirit began to recognize that Jesus Christ was absolutely Lord. Lord of the situation. Lord of the circumstance. Lord of the business, Lord of the family, Lord of the church. He was the despot, the dictator. 
Vance Havner says, there's never been a dictator in the history of the world that has required more complete allegiance than Jesus. The only difference is he had a right to it, and he does. Now, what has happened to the church? I mean, what is, why, is, why have people gone after all these parachurch groups and they've abandoned the church for these, these religious cults? I don't have the answer to that. I'm not going to even try to pretend I do. But I do know this. That most of the time when something true fails, it's because something false succeeds. You know, um, a happily married couple don't look for thrills in, in extramarital affairs. They don't have to. They're happy with each other. So that, that if you see that happen, it's, it's because something over here that's true failed. Now, what has failed in the church? I, I don't have the answer to that, but I think, and I just want to touch on it just quickly. I think that we can go back, and this is pretty simplistic, but I think we can go back to a beginning place, and that beginning place was, is, the lack of spiritual authority in the church. The absence of the Lordship of Christ in the congregation and in the ministers. The absence of the Lordship of Christ. Two days before he died, A.W. Tozier wrote an article that was printed in the, in, the, in the Alliance Witness. He was a minister in the Christian Missionary Alliance. And if you've not caught on, he's, the, he's my favorite writer. He wrote an article that was printed in the Missionary Alliance two days before he died entitled, The Waning of Authority in the Church. And he made this statement. He said, I can now affirm that Jesus Christ has absolutely no authority in the lives of most of the people who bear His name. Now that's heavy stuff. Well, let me ask you how much authority does He have in your life? How much does He call the shots in how you spend your money, who you date, who you love, how you parent, when you come to church so that it just may be that the great need is come back to a recognition of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. It happens when we surrender our wills absolutely to His will. It occurs when we open up our conscience to, to the quickening of His holiness the nourishment of our mind with His truth, the purification of our imagination by His beauty, and the opening up of our heart to His love. It happens when a person says, all right, I will allow Jesus to be my dictator. And when the Holy Spirit infills a church, I don't know which comes first, the chicken or the egg, when the Holy Spirit fills the church, that begins to take place. Let's pray together. Father, draw us now to a decision that will glorify Thee, that is worthy of this word, because I pray in Jesus' name. Now, there are three invitations. Look at here. I'm going to ask you in a moment... 
If you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Jesus demands lordship. And he wants to walk into your life, but He wants to come there if you'll invite Him there to be the Lord and Savior of your life. Would you bow your will to Him? And say, I want you to take possession of my life and save me. I want my sin forgiven. I want to be yours. We're singing a moment, have thine own way. Be careful how you sing that. Thou art the potter, I'm the clay. I'm going to ask you to get up in a moment if, when we sing, when we start to sing and, and, and come and join this church if God's leading you to do it. Because you can't begin to walk in lordship until you've de dealt with that. Are there so many of us this morning, so many of us that make up the congregation of First Baptist Church of Durant who need to bow knee and will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Now there are areas of your life today that are unyielded to Him. And when that church was filled with the Holy Spirit, it was shaken. Oh God, shake the church. In a moment, we're going to imitate, give an imitation, extend that to you who will be the first to come while we stand to sing.